0: It's paradise. You jump in the water and immediately you are surrounded by sharks. Gray reef sharks. I I took a a photo with 30 gray reef sharks in one frame, um, swimming above us. And back then the coral reef was absolutely spectacular, thriving 80% of the bottom was live coral. And inside the lagoon, there were these pavements of giant plants.
1: That's Dr. Enrique Sala describing the Line Islands, a pristine area of the South Pacific that he's documented as part of the National Geographic Pristine Seas Project. And you're listening to This Ocean Life Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Josh Peterson, your friendly neighborhood podcast host of This Ocean Life. Just want to start off really quick by thanking you for being here today for another podcast episode. If you want some fun stuff to read in between episodes, you can find my blog at thisoceanlife.tv and sign up for the bi-weekly newsletter packed full of latest episodes, articles, fun news, and more. And As always, your support by subscribing to This Ocean Life on your podcast app is incredibly appreciated, as is your pledging support on my Patreon page if you're interested in doing so, patreon.com slash podcast. Everything helps. Keep the podcast fun, vibrant, and a great distraction from us all from the strange world we're living in today. Now, today, we have Dr. Enrique Sala, who grew up in Spain along Costa Brava, where at a young age, he found passion for the undersea world by watching Jacques Cousteau's Undersea World television series, just like I did on Sunday nights back here in the 80s, (laughs) pursuing a life of research and conservation to help protect all the oceans, Dr. Sala came to the U.S. and spent years as a tenure professor and researcher with Scripps Institute. We hear the story of his epiphany, that his research felt more like writing an obituary of the sea rather than inspiring protection. This took Dr. Sala to creating the Pristine Seas Project with National Geographic that for the past 12 years has taken him around the world, documenting his over... 30 remote and untouched areas of marine life with the goal to inspire decision makers in all the countries of the world to take stronger action to protect their waters. He shares stories of still unspoiled areas of the ocean and stories of areas like the Galapagos struggling to heal themselves from human impacts such as overfishing. Now through them all, Dr. Sala has used his stories to write an amazing new book called The Nature of Nature, That helps all of us understand the importance of biodiversity in the ocean and how the health of our planet is fundamental to human health, well-being, economic prosperity, and so much more. I really love the final chapter where Dr. Salah ties the COVID pandemic to our general disconnect from the natural world. It's really pretty cool. So definitely go check out the Pristine Seas Project and Dr. Sal's book, The Nature of Nature, for a dose of inspiration that we all together can help our oceans truly return to the clean, healthy, and vibrant places that we all dream about. First, welcome to this Ocean Life podcast. I really appreciate you taking time today. No, thank you for having me, Josh. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, you spent a lifetime in and around the ocean in, in various capacities, and today, in the next hour, we'll dive into a lot of you know these different areas. Uh, you know, as a scientist, conservationist, book author, and so many other disciplines. But if you would start by just sharing how you got hooked into the ocean as a kid growing
0: up, yeah, it was thanks to the television. You know, I was, I grew up on the Mediterranean coast of Spain, watching the undersea world of Jack Cousteau. Oh, yeah, you know, I was absolutely fascinated by the adventures that Cousteau and his team of divers. Um, had all around the world on their famous boat, the Calypso. And that's what I wanted to do when I grew up. I wanted to be one of those divers exploring the ocean.
1: Oh, man, I can relate. I remember doing the same thing. And I think here in the U.S., it was like Sunday evening. It was Jacques Cousteau would come on. And it was just like, because there was really nothing else at the time. There wasn't a lot of magazines. There wasn't all the social media. There wasn't videos of all this stuff. It was That was kind of your source for, you know, the world of the ocean. Yeah, well, that that tells me how
0: old you are, actually.
1: <laughs> I, should, I know. We just dated <laughs> ourselves there.
0: <laughs> You're right. Back then, it was, uh, you know, in Spain there were two TV channels, and even Sunday evening also. That and that was the only show about the underwater world, so it was impossible to miss.
1: I know. Did you ever have uh, grown up in Spain? Did you have the show Flipper?
0: Flipper was an American thing. We right. that was not something that we saw in Europe when I was a kid in the in Got the it. 70s.
1: Got it. Okay. Because I remember growing up kind of like late 70s, early 80s, having flipper also. So it was like Flipper was like the young kid and the dolphin, which is kind of fake, but also very cool because it was under the water. And then I had Jacques Cousteau as well. So anyway, <laughs> it brings us back. <laughs> So you grew up watching Jacques Cousteau, but I mean, talk about the hands-on part. Like, was your family into the ocean? How did you get, like, your first hands wet and, you know, sandy, you know, with, around it? No, I was the weirdo of the family. You know,
0: my, my friends had posters of soccer players on their uh, bedroom walls, and I had posters of marine animals and Cousteau divers. And no, I was lucky that I grew up near the coast, near the Costa Brava of the Mediterranean. And I spent my summers with my mom and my younger brother there. So I was lucky to spend every day, several hours on the beach and swimming in those little coves. But it was confusing because Cousteau showed us all this amazing life, that richness on TV with the dolphins, sharks, whales, seals, coral reefs, kelp forests, And then I went swimming and there was nothing. The bottom was barren and there were lots of sea urchins and, and little fish. So I thought that that was the way the Mediterranean Sea was and that that richness was something that happened only in exotic seas. But then, of course, I, as I grew up, I realized that the Mediterranean was the most, mm. the historically most over overfished sea on the planet. and And it was because of us that there was almost nothing left.
1: Right. Yeah, you tell a neat story and then kind of leading into your book, which we'll spend a lot of time on in a minute, but, you know, in the, in the intro to your book, you, you, you tell this neat story of as a kid, I think in your teens, you know, working at a local store, um, or maybe at a cafe and then going down by the sea and just kind of being mesmerized a little bit by the diversity of algae. And what's interesting about that is for most people, algae is just like the stuff you slip on when you're, you know, walking on the rocks or it's just kind of around your feet, you know, when you're surfing and when you're looking for big whales, or, you know, it's not, it's kind of nondescript, but it was interesting. And i like to hear more about it. you were fascinated by it. You realized that the abundance and the diversity of just algae was just, it was really impressive to you. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. You know, th- there
0: are no coral reefs in the Mediterranean and there are no big kelp forests like the ones in, in California, for example, the giant kelp forest. There are these teeny al- algal forests that are maybe a foot uh, tall but when you look it's like a miniature miniature forest there are a friend of mine actually uh, identified 140 different species of algae 140 different species of seaweed in an area the size of a dinner plate whoa wow yeah, it's all—it's like a mini miniature reef. There are the diversity, the number of species is incredible, but they are all all micro. They are tiny, and they grow on each other. So you have one brown algae that looks like a pine tree growing on top of a of a barnacle or a mussel, and then you have a, a little red algae growing on top of the brown one, and then you have these little uh, diatoms or these little yellow green looking up. Uh, microscopic algae growing on top of the green alga on top of the brown alga to on, on top of the muscle so if you have patience and, and you have a, a microscope the Mediterranean is a fantastic place
1: yeah yeah and so that kind of again as in your teens you're already excited about the ocean you really got kind of wrapped up and interested in like the, the algae and you kind of carried that forward into your study at the university is that right
0: that's correct because then you know when i turned 18 and uh, that was the legal age to become a scuba diver, to become certified. And I was lucky that the first, after a few dives in a pool, I did my first dive at sea in a Marine Reserve, at the Medas Islands Marine oh, Reserve, cool. a place that had been protected from, from fishing for a few years. And when I jumped in the water, it was like going back in time, or it was like diving into one of Jacques Cousteau's documentaries wow, there were algae on the bottom. There were these walls full of red and yellow sea fans, these soft corals and fish everywhere and large fish and fish that I had never seen before. And I thought, wow, this is the way it was supposed to be. You know, this is the way it was. Yeah. And the rest of the coast that is bare used to be like this, but we fished everything out. And the ecosystem basically collapsed and and i said okay this is what i'm going to do for my phd i'm going to study what happens when you protect an area Mm -hmm. and and everything comes back
1: you know right right and that was at a time when you know the concept of marine reserves I'm, i'm kind of guessing here so let's call that like in the in the 80s ish wasn't really as prominent of a Kind of a conservation tool or protection tools it is today. So, not, so talk about just like where the the concept and the support for marine reserves was back then.
0: Yeah, well, in Europe there were a few small reserves, but some of them were had been established in in the seventies, seventy eight is two in France, and that one on the Medas Islands in eighty three, and. You know, the American scientific community took a longer time to discover mm. marine reserves, but it, it was something that was already part of our, the diving community mm. in, in the Mediterranean. But in general, you are absolutely right that uh, now everybody hears about marine reserves if you are in the marine community, of course, and divers, they want to go diving mm-hmm. in marine reserves. But first, these places were created to protect places of extraordinary beauty. It is an archipelago of France and the northwestern part of Corsica. Places that are not, that haven't been developed like most of the Mediterranean coast that were still still had some of the charm of the ancient Mediterranean. And the Metas Islands was a place you know these rocks one kilometer offshore that had these vertical walls underwater with this forest of uh, sea fans uh, red and and yellow and all this fish and it was a place that was just beautiful. But then as time went by, then the fishing community or some or the fishing lobby realized that, wow, you know, uh, these things, these are, these are areas where the fish are back, but they don't let us fish in them. Right? So then there was a push in the United States for, for scientists to show that these protected areas, that these reserves would also benefit mm-hmm. fishing. Because the fishing industry said, well, you know, we cannot protect more because we can we cannot we cannot we have to provide more fish for people. So you have to show us that these reserves are not going to harm us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I remember being a little bit part of that here in the Monterey Bay area during that time with our National Marine Sanctuaries program and seeing and seeing the formation of these marine reserves as like a sort of a temporary status. Because what they wanted to do was then check to see is the abundance or diversity in that area any different over time from the one that's being fished you know so and so seeing that the results that i did a little scientific scuba diving to to be able to go look at those monitoring sites over time and mm-hmm. then finally people realized it you know there was more fish and it kind of it, they worked you know so then with you you took that in your passion to hear the states you know you landed at scripps institute in la jolla in california which is a world famous you know, oceanographic institution. So how did you land there and what, what were you doing? You were teaching, writing papers and such.
0: Yeah, when I finished my PhD in the Mediterranean, I wanted to have a, a, an experience in another sea. So I was able to get a postdoctoral fellowship from the Catalan government. And I was very lucky that a wonderful man and scientist accepted me, agreed to, to be my postdoctoral mentor, that man is Paul Dayton, uh, he's now retired, but he's mm-hmm. a very famous marine ecologist yes. who who has worked in Antarctica and the Pacific Northwest and the intertidal in giant kelp forest. And I went there to do a two years you know, two years of research and then come back to to Catalonia. But I stayed ten years at
1: Scripps. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I really loved it there
1: kelp forest saw a different perspective diving than, you know, like, and kind of than anywhere else, really.
0: Yeah, I love the kelp forest, you know, they are like the, the redwood forest of the sea. Yeah. You, you, you know, yeah. you, you've you died in this kelp forest in, in Monterey. It's so spiritual when you are down there and you see the yeah. sunlight filtering through oh, the yeah. canopy as if through the stained glass of a cathedral. It's few things
1: better than that Oh, I agree. I totally agree, man. It is very spiritual, very meditative. Uh, It's just, yeah, it's the best really. Uh, So then at your time at Scripps, and I'm kind of going to quote from your book a little bit, um, you know, you you basically said you're teaching writing papers, but one day you realized that all you're doing was writing the obituary of ocean life. So talk about that when you kind of had this realization that things weren't great that they maybe weren't improving you know and just like tying that to like this pretty strong word of like the obituary of ocean life what was that was like a kind of a transformational time for you like a shift totally
0: it was an epiphany because you know that's what scientists do right we conduct research and write scientific papers and if you are in academia the incentives for you are to teach a little bit Uh, the uh, university didn't ask us to do much service Back then, and you have to write as many, publish as many papers in peer review journals as possible. That was the thing: publish, 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 right? And then you are evaluated and promoted every few years, and you and you climb the academic ladder. And one day I realized, yeah, that oh, you know I felt like the doctor who's telling you how you're going to die, <laughs> with excruciating detail, but not offering a cure. Right. So we kept, uh, you know, we did more and more studies confirming what others have had already shown and showing the decline of ocean life with more and more precision. Mm. So I said, okay, I'm, I'm done writing the obituary. This is too depressing. I want to work on the cure and I quit. And then I went back to Catalonia for a year and I came up with this idea of combining exploration research and media to try to inspire country leaders to protect the wildest places in the ocean, and I call that pristine seas.
1: Mm. So
0: I went to try. I traveled to Washington DC in January 2008 and made a presentation to the executives at National Geographic. Because National Geographic is famous for exploration, research, and media, so I thought it was the perfect institution to combine to combine the three. And uh, in their infinite wisdom, they like the idea. <laughs> Uh, yeah so i moved to dc in july 2008 wow. and i've been i've been working on this uh, for the last 12
1: years that's amazing man so you had this cool idea and you took it to dc to national geographic who said yes let's do it like that's did that blow your mind when you got the okay from those guys
0: i tried to contain myself while i was in the building when i left when i turned the corner i was jumping up and down oh, like crazy.
1: <laughs> that is so cool i mean that is such a neat inspirational story of like making your own dream job, doing something that's passionate, you're passionate about, that you love to do. I mean, that's that's so cool. So then talk about that, the Pristine seas Project, 12 years in, working with National Geographic. I mean, give us the lay of the land, kind of high level what it is, what your goals are, and then kind of day to day, your involvement in it.
0: Yeah, so when I was in academia, we published, but you know, we didn't do policy, and they didn't train us to, to communicate. I was very lucky that a project that Jane Lubchenko started called Mm -hmm. the aldo leopold leadership program where they every year they gave um, a fellowship to i think 15 or 18 mid-career scientists to to be trained to speak in plain english basically Mm -hmm. it was media training and that was revolutionary for me i said wow you know yeah we need to do more of this and the way we write papers is so jargony and so esoteric we need to be able to communicate, otherwise we're going to be socially irrelevant. Mm -hmm. So uh, we started this project with the idea of, okay, let's find some of the wildest places in the ocean, remote, mostly uninhabited, places that have been not fished much. And let's try to protect them in large national parks in the ocean, in large marine reserves. And let's use this combination. Let's go on expeditions to these places conduct scientific research to show how healthy they are then over time we also started to conduct economic analysis to mm-hmm. estimate the benefits of protection versus you know, the, the cost of over exploitation and then let's produce media let's produce documentary magazine articles small sh- shorts for social media with the goal of inspiring the decision makers in the countries that own these places to protect them. And it's been a fantastic ride. We've mm-hmm. been to 30 places so far and wow. 22 of them are already protected.
1: Hmm. Man, and these are places, like you said, they're remote. I mean, give us, I'm guessing they they span all kinds of different types of ecosystems from warm tropical reefs to what cold temperate climates and everything in between. So what's, after being all over the place, What's Give us a couple of your favorite locations that you've been to.
0: Yeah. Okay. The first one we went to in 2009, the Southern Line Islands. These are five uninhabited islands that are between French Polynesia and the equator. They belong to the Republic of Kiribati. Nobody lives there. It's paradise. You jump in the water and immediately you are surrounded by sharks, great reef sharks. I I took a a photo with 30 grey reef sharks in one frame. and swimming above us and back then the coral reef was absolutely spectacular thriving 80 percent of the bottom was live coral and inside the lagoon there were these pavements of giant clams four or five giant clams per square meter and nobody 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 there so we did three dives a day for uh, uh, four weeks it was paradise that's the example of the the perfect coral reef, but then there are fantastic places like the kelp forests around Cape Horn in mm-hmm. southern Chile, which are fabulous underwater cathedrals with so much life. Or Franz Josef Land, the northernmost archipelago in the Arctic, it's a part of Russia, with polar bears and walruses, wow. colonies of hundreds of thousands of seabirds, glaciers, really wild places. It was like going back to the to the ice age. And, and many others. We've been to three wonderful places. But one the most iconic probably is the Galapagos Islands. Mm. Where most people know the Galapagos Islands for the tortoises and the iguanas and the finches. But underwater, spectacular. It's so rich underwater. You can see the marine iguanas eating. But also, you can swim with schools of 200 hammerhead sharks. Yeah, yeah. And the see 42, 45 foot long pregnant
1: female whale sharks.
0: Oh, wow. It's one of my favorite places.
1: Amazing, amazing. And you're talking about places, and maybe Galapagos is this one. So you're talking about places like, you know, the Kiribati Islands out there, um, or owned by the Kiribati country, is places that are super pristine and, and just haven't been touched. Then like Galapagos is different. It's It's been man it's being managed. So is, is that a place where, because you've also been to places that have, had problems that have been regulated protected in whatever way and you've seen recovery you've seen like a positive you know response from the you know from the the ecosystem there so is the galapagos one of those spots where you think it's coming back from the regulations and sort of measures that have been put in place
0: no actually the galapagos is getting worse Mm. because there is commercial fishing inside the galapagos the galapagos exports lobster No, it's a marine reserve in theory it's a world heritage site The good thing is that there is no large scale industrial fishing like tuna fishing inside the reserve, but the local fishermen have been enough to deplete the populations of groupers and other species in in the shallows. And sometimes you are, you know, diving and see sharks with hooks on their mouths. Mm -hmm. So it could be managed, it could be managed much better.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. But are there other Mm -hmm. spots that you have seen the management of practices, you know, um, effective?
0: Absolutely when a place is well protected especially what we call the fully protected areas areas without fishing oil drilling mining or other damaging activities marine life recovers spectacularly one example i love is a little national park 70 square kilometer national park in baja california called cabo pulmo
1: Mm -hmm.
0: it's something that everyone in california you should guys should go it's easy to get to yeah this is a place where in the mid 90s the place was an underwater desert the fishermen were so upset not having enough fish to catch that they decided to stop fishing in an area of 70 square kilometers so they asked the Mexican government to create a national park a marine national park they did we did surveys in 1999 hmm. uh, counting measuring the abundance of fish in this place and many other places along Baja and that place was not different from the rest. It was a completely mediocre place with very, very few large fish. We returned 10 years later, we redid the whole survey all around the, uh, the Sea of Cortez. All the other places remained the same in that state of mediocrity, low abundance of fish. But when we went to Cabo Pulmo, oh my God, everything had changed. Mm-hmm. We saw it come back to pristine including the return of a large fish the the groupers uh, the golf grouper the leopard grouper schools of three thousand big eye trevally sharks you know before in the in the previous decade we had seen maybe 12 sharks total in hundreds and hundreds of dives 12 sharks total you can see this now in just one dive in it's it's a spectacular place so we there we detected the largest recovery of fish of the biomass of fish anywhere in the world and this is something that we have seen Mm. everywhere in the mediterranean in the indian ocean in the pacific in the caribbean this this miracle happens everywhere where you
1: protect an area and you don't let any extraction to happen yeah so it can happen that's cool to see that hands-on for yourself and so you're talking like twelve years of working with National Geographic and the Pristine Seas program, kind of leading us up to today. And basically now, what I think you've done, and I'm going to ask you to tell more, is you know about your book, The Nature of Nature. It sounds like, and I've just scanned a bunch of it and kind of dug into a bunch of chapters. But it feels like after talking to you for the last twenty minutes, you've the culmination of the last sort of twelve years plus your life growing up is now funneling into this, this book. So talk, 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 us, talk us through the book itself and what it is and what your goals are for it.
0: Yeah, no, the nature of nature is my love letter to the planet.
1: I had all these
0: ideas, so everything I, I learned and everything I observed and, and the ideas developed by others and you, know, you, you never have your own ideas, right? Uh, your ideas are a combination of mm-hmm. uh, input that you get from, from the world and by learning from all my teachers and mentors i came, i had this i developed this this view of the world in my mind and it, i thought it was the time to to get it out and first i wanted to write a book about the nature of nature right how does nature work because we are not able to create an ecosystem that will support us you know it takes billions of dollars per year To maintain eight humans or between three and eight humans at the international space station and everything that they need to survive we ship from here Hmm. so how is it possible that nine million species of plants and animals and one trillion different type of microbes coexist interact and it works and before we started screwing up our planet big time You know it was predictable it was seasonal it was uh, stable so how is that possible so the book is a series of stories telling how scientists including some of my stories found out about some of the principles of how how nature works and what's cool about it i'm sorry please no and that, that that was the initially that was the that was my goal but Then we started working on a campaign uh, with the WIS campaign for nature to Call for 30% of the planet to be protected by 2030 And the first question that people ask well, you know, can we afford this, you know, because we need to feed the world and we cannot protect more nature So then the book the idea of the book became I, I want to show how nature works and why we need all these species out there So they can continue providing all these services that we get for free, like oxygen and clean water and food and flood protection, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, but then I uh, realized that we need to make an economic argument. So the book also makes the economic argument for more nature conservation. And this year we published a, a report that shows that for every dollar that we invest in protected areas, nature give us $5 in return, at least. But then the COVID pandemic happened yeah. after the book had been written, edited, and it was ready to go to the printer. And I was able to stop the process <laughs> and, and, and write the final chapter about the nature of coronavirus, which I think is the loudest wake-up call yeah. Yeah. for humanity. Uh, you know, to, to The fact that we are not the masters of the universe that we are not in isolation that we are we should be more humble we are one piece of this interconnected uh, biosphere and then i was able to to add that section um, on the on how our broken relationship with nature is the cause of this pandemic and other epidemics in the past and probably key to to our future
1: yeah, and that's what struck me too. And I, I I finished scanning it last night, and there's some chapters captured my attention, which I'll drill into. But as you, I noticed at the very end, I didn't see it for some reason when I looked at the table of contents. But when I got to the end of the book, I was like, "Oh, the coronavirus!" And I I, I sensed your last minute capturing the book before it went to the press and wrote this really amazing. It really was like kind of wrapped all the whole book together into "Yeah, we are not masters of the universe," and I, you did it really well. It's very timely. But what I like about it too is, as you mentioned earlier, you know, in academia and science, the world of science, the way we share information that we're gathering or seeing is in a way that's not really digestible by everyday men and women, by just society. And so you have to put it in terms people can relate to and tie back to themselves. And I think your book does that really, really well, where it's not like, it's educational, but it's not saying, Hey, I'm going to educate you. You know what I'm saying? It's more, much more passive. Whereas you read through it, you're learning, you're learning, you're learning, but it's also, I really like how you tie it back to us as people, what it means to us and our families and our future, et cetera. Um, so how did, I guess kind of where'd that come from? I mean, just your ability to kind of tie these scientific concepts back to just people. I mean, is that just sort of part of your nature? Is that something that was kind of challenging to do as you wrote the book? Well,
0: you are very kind, George. Thank you so much for your kind words. And uh, this is not something that was natural. You know, as a scientist, you were trained to uh, follow a certain process, very rigorous and write in a certain way and following a certain quite rigid structure. Mm-hmm. But it was after I left academia that I learned that if you want to people to listen, if you want people to learn, you know, forget about pedagogy and the way uh, we have been trained in mm-hmm. school you, know, you have to tell stories so this is what I decided to to tell to tell stories and the stories of yeah. people finding things because of course you know you will remember uh, if I tell you a really surprising story of that Soviet scientist in mm-hmm. his early 20s um, playing with test tubes and and growth medium and yeast and he's the one who figured out how two species can coexist wow you know if you can see the guy in the early years of the soviet union doing these experiments in a in a a lab with very primitive equipment and and the amazing understanding that uh, the amazing discoveries that he made wow this is something that will resonate right but if i tell you that well, the, during the disco- discovery of the uh, exclusive uh, exclu- exclusionary competition uh, principle, you know when two people, you know, that's absolutely boring, even for for scientists. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think it was the what you know my training as an ecologist uh, allowed me to put things together and make connections. But I think that uh, what really changed for me, what I had to learn, was to use stories, tell stories uh, to to communicate science.
1: I think that's so dead on. I really do. Um, having been in science for a, a little bit of my life, but also just uh, having teenage kids, for example, and just educated parents who want to know, but just really you could see it glaze over <laughs> when the, whatever the, the subject matter is, is just into science-y, you know what I'm saying? And so being able to translate that in a way that people get and can resonate with and can um connect with is it's a it's a gift and it's so crucial so i really like folks listen like that's why i put have everybody read this book plus it's not it's it's short enough and it's just written i blew through it it's it's really quite awesome so i can't say enough about it so <laughs> thank you Josh. thank you Josh. i bet that you're telling stories to your kids too right has, has
0: any of your kids ever told you oh don't tell me more stories please yeah
1: no it doesn't happen <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. So a couple of parts of the book that just might, you know, kind of pique my own personal interest. Um, one is the kind of the concept of biodiversity, you know, one of your chapters, you know, diversity is good. It really, what I kind of struggle with, not your chapter, but we see this word, this term biodiversity floating around. And for folks who like you haven't read some books or had an, an ecology class in school or whatever that is, you get the term, you understand what it means, but also the importance of it and what I think where I'm kind of struggling a little bit is that term as this kind of, not a buzzword, but we see it everywhere. We see it in social media, biodiversity, biodiversity, but what are your thoughts? I mean, do you think the average human, um, you know, understands a, what it kind of means, but just the importance of it, you know, to just the natural world and us? Yeah. I like
0: what you said, the natural world much better. And even scientists have a problem with uh, biodiversity because it's it's a very complex thing right biodiversity is the the diversity of life on the planet that includes the the diversity the differences in in between you know within species you look at dogs you know a a german shepherd and a chihuahua Mm -hmm. they couldn't be more different it's the same species they have Mm -hmm. the same genome Right, it's crazy. So that's that's diversity, right? But then the difference between species, because dogs are clearly different from cats, cl- clearly different from elephants. And then these species get together to form ecosystems. You have the giant fo- kelp forest, the African savanna, the redwood forest. And these these communities, these assemblages of species are also you know, different. A forest in the Sierra's in California is completely different from a forest in, in Brazil, right? So we have a uh, diversity differences in, in, in the way life is expressed um, throughout the planet, from the micro scale to, to the global scale. And that's what makes it complicated because temperature is easy. You measure it in degrees. A distance, you can measure it in feet or yards or, or miles, but there are there is not a single measure of biodiversity. Mm. It's the, it's the, combination of all these all these uh, all this diversity all this variety of life so like you i prefer to say the natural world or nature it's Mm -hmm. much easier for everybody to understand
1: yeah i I totally get it and one of the things i'm seeing the, the term or the concept of bio- biodiversity being used in kind of everyday life for people who care about the ocean is with sharks. And this is because people go, we shouldn't kill sharks And for the average uninformed person should, should mostly go, well, why they kill people? like there's that kind of perception. But when the story is now being told in much more clear ways about around biodiversity of how the sharks fit into, you know that mm-hmm. concept of the natural world of you know being the top predator and how, when the sharks are gone, other things start to fall apart. So can you give us just that kind of that kind of um, picture of how sharks fit into like a clean, healthy reef or part of the ocean?
0: Yes, and before i like to say something about the, the what you mentioned that sharks kill people. Okay, so if sharks kill people and we should kill sharks, then we should kill cell phones too. That's right. Because more people kill themselves every year taking selfies than people are killed by sharks
1: amen to that
0: no, on average only five people are killed by sharks every year around the world uh, five it's I, and i think the first time i saw a statistic in 2017 it was 14 people killed themselves taking selfies like you know from a balcony or you know the steps of the taj mahal and falling backwards and things like this so by the same principle yeah you should we should kill dogs too because yep. dogs kill uh, thousands of people every year uh via rabies around the world so it's very irrational and i think that the movie jaws did a huge disservice to the poor sharks
1: yes and we
0: have we have dived you know in this we've been we've done 1600 dives uh with uh, with pristine season the last 12 12 years um and this in these expeditions when we do usual an average of three expeditions per year we have dived with thousands and thousands of sharks overall, right? In some places, 200 sharks in one dive. And we have never, ever felt any risk or being threatened or attacked, never. And we've mm-hmm. dived with tiger sharks, bull sharks, silkies, hammerheads, you name it. Um, except for the white shark, which we haven't seen in a Pristine's expedition, almost every other known shark. We yeah. have seen. And never, they have never been, a, you know, I'm more scared of jellyfish and sea urchins than, oh, than yeah. sharks. <laughs> so that's just to say that people's fears about the sharks are very irrational. But when it comes to the balance, you know, the, yeah, the sharks are the, like the keystone at the top of the arch that keeps it together when you remove sharks this is the first step in the degradation of the entire ecosystem and mm-hmm. um, when you remove the top predators not not just sharks but uh, you know uh, polar bears and, and jaguars on the land and lions in in the african savannah uh, mountain lions or wolves in, in the united states the whole system starts to to unravel and sharks eat, you know, you, you, we have been to these places with so many fish and the sharks are around and they don't attack anybody. As soon as one fish starts showing uh, signs of weakness or, or, or disease, you know, the sharks are very good at cleaning up yeah. the, the weak and, and the old, and they keep everybody, you know, they, they keep the balance of the, of the entire, of the entire ecosystem. So when you dive in a place, jump in the water and see sharks you can tell that everything below is healthy because you do need an ecosystem to produce all the food that the sharks eat right you cannot see a lion uh, in a in a desert with nothing to eat you cannot yeah. see a shark in in a barren mm-hmm. ground where there is nothing to eat so they are not only the indicator but also the the, the keystone that that keeps
1: that ecosystem in balance and working yeah yeah nice i'm gonna pause for one second i gotta plug my laptop in so i don't uh Okay. Lose lose battery here. Give me just one second. I apologize uh-huh. for that. No, no, no Should... worries. I'm, I
0: have nowhere to go.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Awesome. Thank you for that. Cool. Um, so another area that I, on top of the biodiversity and what it means to folks is is the economics of nature. And you you mentioned a little bit earlier. um, And it's something that's really kind of stuck in my mind is I see a lot of good efforts being put into saving nature. It could be NGOs. It could be volunteer groups. It could be governments. It could be, there's all kinds of different things. But it seems to me that when you can really tie a dollar figure Really tie strong economics to why you should protect something, why you should change from maybe an extractive um, activity like shark fishing to ecotourism. When you can prove that model economically, it feels like we have a much better shot at getting the powers that be behind it. So talk about that chapter of your book. And if you would give us some more statistics that you've mentioned, you know, um, around the economics behind saving nature.
0: Yes. So... If you think about how much we are spending today on on protected areas, for example, right? So do you like ice cream? Yes. Okay. Um, do you like nature? I do. I love nature. So if you have to, if you have to to decide where are you going to put your dollars to save nature or to eat ice cream? Yeah, nature. Well, the world is spending more on ice cream than on protected areas right now. Yes. That's one crazy statistic, right? But then when you look at how much we would need to protect what the science is telling us, we need at least 30% protected by 2030. And we released an economic study this year that shows that the cost of a system of protected areas, land and sea, covering 30% of the planet would cost $140 billion per year. You think, wow. That's a lot of money, right? But the world spends more on video games. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Not only that, the world, the governments of the world use public money, taxpayers' money, to subsidize activities that destroy nature with $500 billion per year, three times more. We spend three times more yeah. in activities that destroy nature than what we should spend in saving a third of the planet, which doesn't make any sense. It's absolutely ridiculous. Crazy, crazy,
1: believable, but crazy.
0: So it's affordable. Not only is affordable, I think, look, look at the costs of the pandemic, right? What's the cost of this COVID-19 pandemic? The the cost is wildlife trade, wildlife consumption. Viruses spilled over from a wild animal to a person in China and thanks to our global life lifestyle that infection spread like wildfire the international monetary fund estimates that the costs of this pandemic will be about nine trillion dollars with the t nine trillion dollars over the next two years right wow if that's the cause of the pandemic our broken relationship with nature you know our encroaching upon Uh, forest and other intact ecosystems, our moving species around the globe, like they are commodities. I think investing 140 billion dollars per year is the cheapest life insurance that we have for humanity, you know, just to prevent to reduce the risk of the next pandemic. It's such a cheap and smart investment.
1: Yeah, yeah. But what we're talking about really and it's kind of hitting me as you're as you're you're speaking here is there's an In very generalization, very general terms, there's two types of people I'd say when you talk about nature. One is folks like us and probably everybody listening who inherently has this connection with nature who would give up some niceties in our lives to protect it. Then there's folks who they don't have that connection. You can't blame them for not. They just don't so how do you make them help them form that connection as you put that dollar sign on top of it whether it's saving money in the future making more money now and so it's like this is the right time now as you're saying to be able to show the benefit economically whether we don't kind of care about the economic benefit but many people do of basically helping our restore our connection with nature i mean it's just interesting that we have so what we have to do to ultimately save nature and our planet you know
0: you are absolutely right. What we have to do, right? It's ridiculous that we have to justify the protection of what keeps us alive.
1: Yeah, I know it is. Right. It's it's
0: from you know, a scientific perspective, it's so clear. From an economic perspective, it's so clear. And you can put the numbers in front of the Minister of Finance, and he will get it. But then you have the corrupt leader, could yeah. be a senator, Or a representative or a president who's beholden to the special interest groups um, that are driven by short-term profit by greed Mm -hmm. and their re-election depends on on those people funding them so we are in this uh, vicious circle where facts and science are not only ignored they are usually dismissed and when you come up with economic arguments They come with their own factless uh, economic Mm -hmm. um, myths and, and, you know, like some Paul Krummen called that uh, voodoo economics. So it's not just a question of having the right numbers and the right economic argument and we are dealing with with politics here because we know what we have to do. What we need now is political will, Mm -hmm. corporate CEOs, the good ones are saying, we will do the right thing. If there is government regulation, we need government regulation because we know that if I invest now all these millions in improving the efficiency of my business, I'm going to be saving my energy bills and you know, within three years, but I don't yeah. want to be the first mover. You know, That's in this right. case, they feel that they have first mover disadvantage, right? And an example that I like is the, the Empire State Building. They invested millions of dollars in changing all of their windows, improving the insulation of the building. They have been able to reduce their energy bills, their energy consumption by 40% mm. already, and they can get more still. So that investment, that multi-million-dollar investment that they made, which may seem something stupid to do for somebody who lives on credit or somebody who lives on, Um, yeah, borrowing and and leveraging, you know, it pays off after a few years, right? Mm -hmm. But so you have to have that long-term vision. You have to have that that vision. And what we need right now is the political leadership, setting up this vision and setting up the level playing field, incentivizing activities that will help us build that resilient future and be adaptive, be resilient to the next global crisis instead of propping up the industries yeah. that are, you know, industries of the past.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's like, I think such a great way to to wrap your book up was, you know, you introduced a lot of different concepts. You, ta- you tell so many great stories about species and diversity, but you move into what we just talked about, the economics of it, which really is ultimately, I think what people need to understand more of. And so just for like the day-to-day citizen, I mean, even this in Spain, I mean, what can somebody do day to day, you know, to help if you believe here, who hears something like this, read your book and go, geez, you know, what can I do just day to day with my money or my choices to help?
0: There are so many things one can do, right. But I'm going to suggest two. One is vote, hmm. especially, uh, this year we have key elections that will affect not just uh, uh, individual countries, but the rest of the world. I would say to people, go and vote to the candidates who have your values, who share your values. Vote for the... If you believe that we need to protect our life support system so we can continue to have clean water, clean air, and the wondrous, beautiful diversity of life on our planet for you and for our children, vote to the candidates Mm -hmm. who share those values, who have a plan for environmental protection. That's one thing... Uh, I urge everybody to do this year. Yes. The second one, something that you can do every day, it's very simple, it's good for you, and it's good for the environment, which is a plant-based diet. Mm-hmm. Eat more plants, because here in the United States, people are eating so much meat that the body cannot process so much protein. So much of this protein just goes away, unused. And livestock, for example, takes 41% of the u.s soil 41 percent of the u.s soil the lower 48 is used for livestock and livestock is one of the biggest contributors to global warming so if we reduced the amount of meat that people eat and ate more plants we would have healthier lives we would reduce greenhouse gas emissions helping to mitigate climate change but also that would free a lot of land that would be able to go back to natural mm-hmm. grasslands with natural mm-hmm. herbivores and and forest which produce many many other services that people take for granted
1: yeah yeah and that's part of what you mentioned there is that kind of the rewilding concept that you mentioned in really well in your okay. book which i love those stories yeah so I, i'm with you 100 on that so thanks for those you know those options for us because pe- people are looking and sometimes you can like it's almost like analysis process. We realize there's so many different things you could do that a lot of folks are kind of just they're stuck without doing really one. and and so it's just nice to be able to remind folks hey, here's a couple of things that are super easy to do. It's super impactful. So then where are we where are we going next, Enrique, I mean, you got three expeditions a year. Here we are midway through the year with COVID lockdown. I'm like, is that putting a, a damper on your guys' trips? What do you got planned the rest of the year? Yeah, no, we've been affected like everybody else.
0: And this year we had actually four expeditions planned. Oh, we man. were able to do one to the southern fjords of Chile. Oh, cool. Right before the lockdown. And we had to cancel the other three. So right now we are trying to finish all the scientific reports and the films that we started from previous projects. And we are now planning for a world uh, where our mobility is going to be limited, at least for yeah. the next at least for the next year. So we are looking at a plan on developing stronger partnerships with with indigenous groups and local communities. So we can we can involve them more
1: in living the creation of protected areas in their own waters. Oh, that's cool. So it sounds like I mean, your book is one thing that you have your normal pristine seas. That's just that takes a lot of your time. You, you're, you've been writing a book on the side, but even just with the last few months of having kind of more time on your hands because you're not, you know, you're not traveling, you're not doing all this other stuff. I mean, you're, you're able to. Are you able to shift your thinking a little bit and have more time? And like you said, you're now you're going to decide to work with indigenous, you know, cultures to help them. So is that is that a byproduct of the time you've had with the quarantine and shelter in place? I think do. Think about we stuff. already
0: well i thought that i thought that they would have more time to think and read but yeah i am a friend of mine told me that i've become a zombie because i'm on virtual conference <laughs> constantly all day. <laughs> but no this is you know we, we were already planning to adapt our model of operations and develop stronger partnerships with local communities but the pandemic has been you know a great nudge so the Mm -hmm. silver lining is that we now have the time to think about how we're going to become more resilient for the future Mm -hmm. because if we continue moving animals around the world like now and destroying ecosystems there's going to be another pandemic that's Mm -hmm. what all experts uh, believe and and the next one might be still worse than this one
1: right
0: so how can we make ourselves more resilient and we have spent a lot of time also working on, on the economic side, but also working with governments to uh, inspire the, the creation of recovery stimulus programs that are, that are more green, right? Because it would be, there is a lot of, of course, there are many uh, political representatives that, that, who are using this opportunity to basically bail out or, or yeah. give pork to their Mm -hmm. to their donors but um you know we need to we need to build uh, we need to invest and right now the right thing to do is to to help those who are in need yeah either because they are sick or because they are in economic distress but also we need to start investing in reducing the risk of the the next pandemic
1: yeah yeah that's awesome man It's it's just it's 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 heartwarming to hear that folks like you are who by nature are focused on the ocean, but nature, but then really taking this COVID thing serious and looking at how you can apply what you know, your influence to preventing that, because like you said, it will happen, you know? So that's just, I think it's neat that you're, and admirable that you're stepping out and and doing some thinking around that and some support around that. So thank you.
0: No, thank you. You know, we need more. I, I feel like the conservationists are part of the immune system of the planet. Mm. so we have been activated well we yeah. have been activated a few decades ago and we are like the B cells or the T cells that are going right. to kill the, you know uh, <laughs> this alien, that's cool. alien bodies that are threatening our, our body so yeah, I, I want to believe that the, we are part of the immune system
1: of, of the yeah. planet. Oh that's cool well said I really like that so The Nature of Nature your book when is it coming out? August 25th. Oh hard date nice
0: Yes, I hope that uh, people will be able to. Well, I guess that people are reading more books now during the lockdown. It's unfortunate that you're not able to go to the bookshops and and walk, wander around the shelves and just you know be surprised and discover. Uh, But I hope that people will 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 read more. And yeah, August twenty fifth published by National Geographic Books.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Well, for folks, listen, I'll put links um, in the show notes to the National Geographic kind of area of the website where the books get posted. And then once it comes out, I'll definitely share uh, on some social media to get drive people to it because it's awesome. I have an, er, kind of an early, you know, a copy scan through it, And it's just, I mean, I can't wait to get it in my hands because I just really have it on my bookshelf. So uh, nice work. Thank you for doing that. I mean, just
0: thank you so much. So cool.
1: Yeah, for sure, Enrique. So, Well, good luck with everything, man. I really appreciate your time chatting with you. And uh, I mean, just thank you for putting your energy, heart and soul into helping all of us in the natural world and all the stuff we love in the ocean.
0: Well, thank you so much for the opportunity, Josh, to to be in your podcast. Uh,
1: We need the ocean. Um, Mm -hmm. Keep up the good work. Awesome. You too, man. Well, thank you so much, Enrique. And uh, you take care. Thank you so much, Josh. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening to another podcast episode. Can't do without you. If you like what you heard, would really appreciate you sharing the podcast with people you know who might enjoy the stories that we hear and the guests we have on. And of course, even better, reduce plastic, do something good for the ocean and for each other. Thanks again. We'll catch you on the next episode.